The Lord knows more about what's going on in your life than anyone else. Nobody knows me like you do, he said. And uh, it, it, you just wait for him to speak to you. It's such a precious thing. So uh, our text, 15 verses 1 through 17, our topic, Jesus tells a parable of the vineyard in which he is our life-giving vine and we his fruitful branches. The title of our message, Because You're Mine, I Am the Vine. Let's pray together. Lord, today we do want to hear from you, each and one, every one of us, Lord. As I'm fond of remembering, Lord, you said that you spoke to us between the soul and the spirit in that place where only you make sense. You cut through everything else, Lord, and just come to us personally and individually, and I pray that you would do that uh, with the word of God as our backdrop. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name, and all who agreed said, amen. Stateside, he is orthopedic surgeon Joseph Albin. On the big island of Hawaii, he's known as Kona Joe. For two weeks each month of the year, Dr. Joe Albin heads to Hawaii's big island where Kona Joe grows coffee beans on a 32-acre plantation. He is lauded for his innovative method. Coffee plants are grown like wine grapes lifted up off the ground on trellises. Kona Joe explains, the tree develops with more uniform sun exposure, resulting in more even ripening of the coffee cherry. Sun-exposed fruit is always superior. Jesus was walking with the eleven to the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. He taught them a parable about the vineyard. Jesus compared believers to branches lifted up so that they would have greater exposure to the Son of God. This spiritual trellising would result in maximum fruitfulness. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus promised to be your fruiter. Yes, that's a real word. And number two, Jesus is pleased to be your friend. See, so if nothing else, you've learned a new word today. Fruiter, which is, I don't know what it means. It's one who works in the fruit orchards and stuff like that. It's pretty obvious. Let's take a look at Jesus' promise to be your fruiter in verses 1 through 11. Now, did you know, because I didn't, olive trees have been planted in and around vineyards for thousands of years? It's a very typical process. If you want to learn more about it, Google it, and uh, it's a very interesting combination of, of, of plants. Vineyards were all around them on their walk to the Mount of Olives. Remember, the disciples are in the upper room. Jesus is talking to them. They've had the Last Supper. He said, hey, let's go. Now they're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he would have seen vineyards along the way. And then in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. I would be remiss if I did not mention that this is the last of the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. We've encountered, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and now I am the true vine. Jesus had what we might call situational awareness. Seeing the vineyards all around, he used them to capture this teachable moment. David Guzik writes, the, wine and branch, the vine and branch picture excuse me, emphasizes complete dependence and the need for constant connection. The branch depends on the vine more than the sheep depends on the shepherd or the child depends on the father. Since Jesus was about to depart from his disciples, this would be an unimaginably encouraging 
vision for them, to see them in Jesus even though he was going away. The word fruit occurs eight times in these 17 verses. God desires that your life be spiritually fruitful, and he works tirelessly to that end. And so fruit, repetition is important, obviously, in the uh, teaching. And when you find a lot of repetition in the Bible in one passage, that's probably what the Lord wants to emphasize. And so eight times, 17 verses, the word fruit. This is a parable about bringing forth fruit. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Down in verse 6, it gets a little hairy when it talks about the branches that are taken away and burned. So if I am the branch that does not bear fruit, will I be taken away? Will I be cast out and once withered, thrown into the fire and burned? The number one rule in real estate is what? Location, 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 which is actually one thing. I've never understood that. But anyway, I put forward that a top five rule of Bible reading is context, context, context. You always want to know the context, who's being addressed, what are they actually talking about. In the back of our minds, we already know that Jesus is addressing disciples. That would include us. He's talking about fruitfulness. The parable teaches total dependence upon Jesus to produce fruit. It is not a warning that if you don't do your part, you're going to be cast alive into the lake of fire. Let's start with prune. If you look it up in Strong's Concordance, uh, probably all of you have or have access to Strong's Concordance. It's probably free online. We are not Greek scholars here. I still don't know whether it's gyro or gyro. Uh, which is it? Gyro? That makes sense, but I still pronounce it wrong. But uh, so we don't pretend to be Greek, but anybody can pick up Strong's. And if you, if you don't go too far with it, then you're okay. And so looking just at Strong's Concordance, uh, it says the word prune, uh, rather, if you start with that, it means clean or cleanse. And the Strong's number for that word is G2508. And the word derives from number G2513. So they're telling you there's a root word, G2513, and this has a branch off of it, and it means to clean. In the very next verse, Jesus says, you are already clean. Clean is the same Strong's number, G2513. And so it makes sense that they're not talking about pruning since the word is used twice in the same context. Certainly pruning is part of what a husbandman or what a fruiter does, but that's not what he's doing here. It says he cleans the vine. Now that makes even more sense because a few chapters ago, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, and what did he say? You are all clean. You need to be washed every day because you pick up dirt and defilement, but you are already clean because you are my disciples. And so the people we're talking about here are not being pruned right now. Jesus says, no, you're clean. You're a believer. You're a Christian. Grapevines are often washed with water before harvesting to get the dust and dirt and insects off of them before the harvest. And so that is typical of, of husbandry. Now, uh, the word takes away, that's a little bit stronger, but it can be translated to lift up or to raise 
And that's exactly how you develop grapes, right? You lift them up off the ground on trellises and you raise them up. And so this is certainly what the Lord is talking about. He's looking at the vineyard and he's saying, you guys are all clean, you're my disciples, and I'm going to raise you up the way they raise grapes and grapevines to get the maximum fruit out of your life. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. Commentators say that you are saved as long as you abide. This is that age-old problem of am I saved, you know, once I'm saved, am I saved forever? Some people put it as once saved, always saved, different ways of looking at it. Or can I forfeit my salvation? Once I've been saved, can I, uh, you know, reject that? And there's a big debate, obviously, we talk about that a lot here when it comes up. Uh, And so commentators say, well, you're safe in Jesus as long as you abide. Otherwise, you'll find yourself in ashes in a yard, in a burn. You know, you're just going to burned up. Abide in me and I in you. Let's ask two questions. How does Jesus abide in believers? Well, he does it by the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. We've been learning that in the Gospel of John, and we know that as Christians. But Jesus abides in you by the indwelling Spirit. How long does the Spirit's indwelling last in your life? In verse 6 of chapter 14, Jesus promised, saying, I will pray the Father, he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. He doesn't say that he may abide with you as long as you abide with me. There's no condition attached to it. Jesus says you have the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, if you're a genuine Christian, not just somebody who's professing Christ, but you've been born again, you have the Spirit in you forever. That's right out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. We're not making it up. And so, um, it, you know, it's exciting. It's thrilling. It's wonderful. Since having his spirit is forever, these verses are not about salvation. They're about fruitfulness. You are the branches, totally dependent upon the vine. You can do nothing apart from Jesus, and that includes producing fruit. We believe that, we acknowledge that, but so often, if you, even if you actually listen to messages uh, you know, or listen to yourself, we default to what you ought to be doing. God says, you can't do anything without the spirit. Now, let me see what you can do. No, we're just to bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. It's not that we do nothing. I mean, we, we do a lot for the Lord, but we acknowledge that it's Him doing it through us and that we have nothing to add to it. You are the branches totally dependent on the vine. What about those branches who do not abide and are burned? There are two positions you can hold that are both perfectly biblical. Sometimes people don't like this. They want everything to... to you know, be one way or the other. There are a lot of areas in the Bible, I wouldn't call them gray areas, that's not the way to look at it, but there are a lot of things in the Bible that have more than one possible interpretation that doesn't affect the major doctrines, the orthodox doctrines of the church. So every Christian has to believe certain things, God is one in three, and that uh, Jesus came as incar- you know, the, uh, in his incarnation through the virgin birth, things like that. But there are many things that we disagree on. All you have to do is drive around town and see that there are a lot of different churches. 
And in any one church, we would disagree about certain things as well, but not to the point that it affects our Christianity. And so when the question comes up, well, who are these who didn't abide in Jesus who are burned up? There are two possible ways of looking at it. How does Jesus, uh, excuse me, he says they are not believers. Jesus described believers as abiding in him and he in them. They are not ever said to be in him. And so these would be branches thrown into the fire, those who never had Jesus in them. Judas Iscariot would be our example. We saw him a few weeks ago. He hung around the Lord. You would think that he was in Christ, but Jesus was never in him. All of us would admit uh, that there are many people who go to church that are not saved. They're not born again. There may be people here this morning. You may have been a person like that. You might have gone to church your whole life, but not really known Jesus Christ. A lot of people have that testimony. And so it is possible that these people will be, that are non-believers that will be cast alive into the lake of fire. The other position is these branches are believers, but since we're not talking about salvation, we're talking about their works at the reward seat of Jesus. The Apostle Paul told believers in Corinth, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." And so there is a time coming after the rapture of the church uh, where we will stand before the reward seat of Christ. It's the bema of Christ, it's called in the Bible. And he will reward each of us for things that we did uh, in serving him. Uh, that passage talks about building with precious materials or building with common materials, being spiritual or being carnal. Uh, and, and so when we stand before the Lord, we want to have a good review. You ever had a job evaluation? You want it to be good, don't you? But you always come out and you think, I don't agree with that. I'm not a slob, you know, just because I never wash my Levi's. Did I tell you that you're not supposed to wash Levi's? I feel like I must tell you this. Uh, I can't remember. Did I use this as an illustration recently? I didn't. Oh, I must have cut it out. Uh, I'll use it here where it doesn't make any sense. But anyway, the guy, one of the high guys in the Levi Strauss company, one of their managers, he uh, I was watching an interview. He said, you are never supposed to wash your Levi's. He just spot cleaned them. And he was wearing a pair. He said, I've had this pair on for 10 years without ever washing them and stuff. And I thought, wow. So now I have a pair of Levi's that I do yard work in that I don't wash. And my wife, I have to hide them because Pam's going crazy. <laughs> but the grandkids love it. Every time they come over to help me with the yard work, they say, have you washed your pants? Yet? No, these have not been washed. And you can tell they haven't been washed. But uh, I'm sure he wasn't talking about your yard work pants. But anyway, just. You save water. Pretty soon, the state of California is going to mandate this anyway. They're going to say you can't wash Levi's, and they'll establish the Department of Levi Police and stuff. And so just get ready for it. I'm going to keep talking until I remember what I'm talking about here. Oh, yeah, fruit. So, so on the, uh, yeah, the evaluation, you, you're not going to want to get before the Lord and have like some nuclear blaze going on over here because you'd have no good works and have all your fruit burn up. Uh, and, and yet, he says, but you're saved through that fire. It doesn't cost you your salvation because, uh, you know, it's Jesus who brings forth fruit. You just decided you didn't want to cooperate with him or you wanted to use your own carnal methods and motives. And so I look at this and I think, well, maybe this applies to anyone who's reading it. If you're a non-believer, an unbeliever, you're being warned that you need to be connected to Jesus Christ or you're not going to be saved. You're not saved. 
If you're a believer, you want to be encouraged about uh, love and good works. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. If can be translated since, since you abide in Jesus as a branch on a vine, you can ask. I desire craft coffees. Kona Joe, that's not coming anytime soon at $45 for eight ounces. Red Elephant Coffee Company, that's more uh, doable. Lana Coffee. But that's not what Jesus meant. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So I might desire coffee, or maybe the Ferrari I always talk about. What should a branch desire? If you're a branch, right, the context, what does a branch desire? Well, above all things, to bear much fruit, because that's the purpose of a branch, to be so connected to the vine that you bear tons of fruit. And so this is a promise that God will bring fruit in my life if that's what my desire is. It's not a cop-out. You know, people say, oh, so sir, you can ask for anything and he'll give it to you. That's not really what it says. We're in the context of fruit. You're a branch. You should want what a branch wants because that's what your purpose is. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. Judas had been dismissed to betray the Lord. Peter soon would deny him. The rest would scatter. While the Lord's body was in the tomb, they would be filled with despair. Against such a dark, devastating background, Jesus spoke of them abiding in his love. In the darkest, most dangerous valley of the shadow of death, Jesus loves you with an everlasting, never-changing love. Hopefully you learned many years before I did that when you buy plants from a nursery, they have a tag that tells you how to plant them and where to plant them. Full sun, partial sun, full shade, partial shade, type of soil, nutrients, how much to water them, et cetera, et cetera. I, don't, I, I could be a millionaire and retire today just on dead plants, uh, but it, it's too late for me. Uh, now, talking about fruit, some spiritual fruit requires harsh conditions in order to bloom and grow. Things like heat and drought and pests and wind and floods trials that come into the Christian life. Sometimes I think we get uh, a little bit messed up because we think in terms of fruit and in terms of perfect conditions. Oh, if God's going to bring forth fruit in our lives, the conditions must be perfect. Great soil, great sun, you know, and, and just, you know, all this stuff. And that's not true at all because the, the greatest fruitfulness in your life is going to be during times of adversity. And so you're going to be planted in soils that are uh, harsh, and there's going to be heat, drought, pests, floods, f ice, you know, the, that kind of thing. And so don't be uh, fooled. Don't be, uh, you know, weirded out when that happens. We've established in our studies in the Gospel of John that it is impossible to keep his commandments without the help of the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit, you find that God's commandments are also enabling you to obey. In every circumstance, the Lord can produce spiritual fruit in your life because he is life. Your part is to abide. That word means to continue, to dwell, to endure. Example, uh, let's say you have trouble at work. You've got a terrible boss. Uh, I, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but a lot of people have had terrible bosses over the years. They're just, and they are. You know, if I went in there and, or anybody else would say, you have a terrible boss. I'm glad I don't work for that guy or that gal, right? Uh, whatever it might be. 
and, and it's just driving you crazy. They're, you know, whatever the situation is that you're not promoting above you or they're just treating you mean or whatever and all this. And a lot of times you're tempted, and it's a good thing. Go to counseling you know, and say, hey, I need to talk to you about my job. I'm just, you know, I'm going crazy. Notwithstanding that if something illegal or immoral takes place, it makes a difference, or that you can never leave your job. Nobody ever said that. But that aside, you're just having a hard time at work and you can't take it anymore. The counsel for you is, this is harsh soil with the sun beating down on you. It is just perfect to produce spiritual fruit. You, you know, you're not going to be in some sandy loam with a gentle breeze, you know, drinking iced tea. This is where God has you, you know, or maybe you step back once and say, is this where God has you? How did you get to this job? You know, where are you in the will of God? Then you need to bring forth fruit in this. It's not about your boss. Those people come and go rapidly sometimes. It's about you and your heavenly father and bringing forth fruit. So that's what we're talking about here. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Joy is not the word we would choose to describe those three dark days, was it? Jesus, though, was confident that not only could the 11 and his other followers remain in joy, no matter the circumstances, but that it might be full. You know, some of these, some terrible things come into our lives and they stay in our lives. Illnesses, diseases, long-term problems. Some things come and go. Uh, and, and the idea is that we would learn how to be joyful in them and bring forth a fullness of joy. The greatest expression of their joy would come after they received the indwelling of God the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. The Apostle Peter would later write, although you've never seen him, you love him. Even though you don't see him now, you trust him and so rejoice with a glorious joy that is too much for words. We are being encouraged to fix our eyes upon Jesus in order to become lost in oceans of his love for us individually and as a church. Acknowledge that you are in Christ and that he is in you and endure as commanded in God's word, enabled by the Holy Spirit. That, I mean, it's not profound, it's very simple, but that's a great thing to write down in your Bible for hard times. You acknowledge you're in Christ, that he is in you, you're enduring as commanded in his word, enabled by his spirit, that describes the Christian life, and you then will bring forth fruit. Jesus wants to lift you up, not lop you off, right? This is about being lifted up to bear fruit. A.W. Pink writes, believers are never exhorted to be in Christ. They are in him by new creation. But Christians are frequently exhorted to abide in Christ because this privilege and experience may be interrupted. Abide, continue, dwell, remain in Christ always has reference to the maintenance of fellowship with God in Christ. And so maintain your fellowship with the Lord, desire what he desires for you, desire what a branch should desire, and you'll bring forth fruit. Jesus is pleased to be your friend. The article on a popular Christian blog is titled, Casual Church, What Happened to Christian Reverence? I'll just read you a little bit of it. It says, what happened to reverence? Has God not the right to ask many professing Christians today as he did the negligent priests of Israel? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? I get it. There is a line we can cross into irreverence. 
Now, we would all draw that line somewhere else. Uh, you know, uh, I don't want to get into examples, but I think you know what I'm talking about. You know, there's some things that maybe Christians do. You think, that, that's, that is, that's irreverent to me. I, I can't see them talking about God like that or having that kind of a practice going on. Uh, you know, or, or I know I'll throw one out. I'll get in trouble. Why not? Certain groups, and it's, you can debate about this later, certain groups they have trouble with Halloween and Christian groups that have uh, sponsor haunted houses. Uh, do you know a lot of the haunted houses are sponsored by Christian groups? They're trying to scare these kids and then they hand them a tract at the end, you know, and stuff and tell them what's about. And a lot of Christians say, well, that's a little, that's a little weird, you know, to come at some kid with a chop, you know, with a chainsaw or something, you know, and, uh, receive Christ, <laughs> you know. But, uh, you know, so th there are things you think, hey, maybe that's a little bit irreverent, I don't know. Every year I joke at our harvesting about turning the youth building into the Great Tribulation experience. Uh, but so far, so far it hasn't gained any traction. Uh, I can see why. But, uh, you know, so I'm not saying that, you, you, you know, that anything you do can't be irreverent. But casual is not a, a synonym for irreverent. Just because you're casual doesn't mean you're irreverent. We are most certainly casual, okay? Uh, people come in here in all different states. Uh, in terms of dress and things like that, and that's fine. Two of the illustrations in the Gospel of John that describe our relationship with Jesus are family and friends. Jesus referred to us as little children in chapter 13. Here in our verses, we're going to see we are his friends. Family and friends have a less reverent, more casual relationship with one another, right? You just do. Your, your house may be more formal than another house, but it's still more casual than, than regular relationships out in the world. And certainly a friendship, it's one of the definitions of friendship is that you feel comfortable around that person and, 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 and all, and, and there's a casualness to it. And so I think of the Lord mostly as my friend. Uh, of all the thousands of things that the Lord is and is to me, the one that I think is most precious is friend. And I'll do everything to guard that. Certainly the Lord is a judge. And there are times in my, lives, in my life when I'm, you know, uh, going through his processes and all that. But I'm always his friend when that's happening. And, and I'm going to uh, hang on to that. And, and as his friend, I'm a little bit casual. Not about him or towards him, but just life in general. And so verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Again, not possible to love as Jesus loved without the Holy Spirit indwelling. Good thing he is in you once you're born again. He's a big part of the transaction of your salvation. You believe, you're born again, the Holy Spirit immerses you into the Christian life. He indwells you forever. In the book of Ephesians, it says he is also a guarantee that you will be, sa will be uh, wed to Jesus one day. He's like the engagement ring that the Lord gives you, guaranteeing that you will be with him in heaven. And so uh, great, great, wonderful privileges of having the Holy Spirit indwelling us. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for more than his friends. In Romans we read, for scarcely a righteous man will die for one, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
No contradiction here between you know, dying for those you love and dying for those you don't love. Norman Geisler writes, Jesus died for both his friends and his enemies. In fact, his friends were his enemies when he died for them. There is no contradiction here since the text does not say that Christ died only for his friends. He did die for those who would become his friends, but he also died for those who would remain his enemies. God so loved the world that he draws all men to himself as the savior of all, especially those who believe. Not everyone will be saved, sadly. It's for those who actually believe, but the sufficiency of Christ is in the cross to save anyone. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. John Gill writes, not that they're doing the commandments of Christ made them his friends, or was the reason and motive of his laying down his life for them and showing himself in such a friendly manner to them, the sense of it is this, that by observing his commands from a principle of love, they would make it appear that they were his friends being influenced by his grace and constrained by a sense of his love in dying for them. It'd be like uh, you're out, just maybe you're at work, some of you have experienced things like this, maybe you're at work or just out somewhere, and um, people come up to you and they, they say, excuse me, uh, you know, are you a Christian? Because they heard you say something or they saw you do something or, you know. Uh, the high point of my wife's life happened, I can't touch it now, it happened uh, like 37 years ago, uh, more than that actually, when we first got saved. Uh, we were at a yard sale and this tender old woman came up to her and she goes, excuse me, are you a Christian? And she said, yeah. And she goes, I could tell by the way you were treating your husband. <laughs> no, and then I thought, okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Nothing for me. <laughs> I felt like, you know, Esau, after Jacob got the blessing. <laughs> you got no blessing for me, lady? Come on. So that's the idea is that, is that you are, you know, you, you, you're the friends of Christ and people can tell oh, you're, you're friends with Jesus Christ. He's uh, known to you. Verse 15, no longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. I've called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I've made known to you. Christian life calls for flexibility. You remain servants and are simultaneously friends. God expects us to wear a lot of hats, doesn't he? I sometimes think we have the wrong hat on for the task before us. We choose the wrong hat. I put on a beanie when I need to have a hard hat or vice versa. And so know where you're at in your walk with the Lord. Know what you're you know, called to do. Pray about it and put on the proper hat. We fill all of these roles. They're not in competition with each other. You can't say, well, I, if you're a friend, how can you be a servant? Well, you can. You can be all of those things simultaneously. By his sharing with them the Father's words, they had become friends. We have the Father's words in the complete Bible, containing, it says, everything we need to live a life of godliness. We even know the future. Beloved, you are the friend of God if you're a Christian. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain and that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Jesus chose these men as his disciples. They would have borne much fruit in the kingdom of God on earth had Israel received Jesus as their Messiah. They would yet bear much fruit in establishing the church in his absence. Once more, I urge us to understand the comfort these words would have brought to the eleven. Jesus was prophesying their fruitful future. And in just a few hours, he would be crucified and thrown into the tomb. 
they could, it, it could have hung on to this. Guys, I know it seems dark now. I mean, you talk about darkness. Jesus Christ being crucified. Guys, I know it looks dark, but he said we would yet bear fruit. We would be fruitful in the future. I, no one could see at that time because they were devoid of the spirit living within. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about, but they had his word to hold on to. We will have a fruitful future. Let's, let's hang out there, guys. While this verse causes a controversy in relation to how or if Jesus chooses people to become born again, or how or if the free will of those persons comes into play. I would say that the Lord is not suddenly pivoting to discuss the doctrine of election. By the way, guys, I want to tell you, you're my friends, and you're going to bear fruit, and all this is going to happen. Now let's have a study on the doctrine of election. And that's not what's happening at all. He chose these guys. He's not talking about choosing them you know, from eternity past. He chose 12 disciples. One of them was the devil in order to serve him in a certain way. Election is not on the table here. There's nothing to indicate we're dealing with election or salvation. Context, context, context. Don't read into the text what isn't there. A lot of people, because they come from a certain theological point of view, every time they see the word chose or chosen, they think the Lord is talking about predestination. Not at all. He's encouraging his disciples who he chose to serve him that they would go on serving him and bring forth fruit. To again quote A.W. Pink, the central theme is not salvation, how it is to be obtained or the danger of losing it. The great theme here is fruit bearing and the conditions of fertility. Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. D.L. Moody said, if we have got the true love of God shed abroad in our hearts, we will show it in our lives. We will not have to go up and down the earth proclaiming it. We will show it in everything we say or do. Popular at county fairs to have the largest vegetable contest at our harvest celebration. We have the largest pumpkin. I remember one uh, year the Cool Wines brought in like some 500-pound pumpkin. And as they were bringing it in, I sent one of the guys to say, you're getting rid of that too, right? You know, I mean, we don't need that thing getting rotten around here. But uh, they won, obviously. The uh, longest zucchini ever measured, eight feet, three and a third inches. Probably tasted gross. It was grown by Giovanni Battista Scazzaveza in Niagara Falls, Ontario. We read the stories in the Bible and in church history, and we conclude that God only wants the largest zucchini you can come up with. And that if you're just growing small zucchini, organic zucchini, not very fruitful. But that's not true. Jesus spent his first 30 years on earth learning obedience. Any accounts of him doing miracles before then are false because it says in John 2.13, the beginning of miracles he did in Cana of Galilee when he turned water into wine. He didn't do anything miraculous or special or, special or spectacular for over 30 years. But God the Father was well pleased with Jesus' obscurity in Nazareth. He wasn't waiting for him to produce an eight-foot zucchini. He stands ready to produce his fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and other things in each of our lives right where we are. It doesn't have to be giant fruit. And the truth is, big, am I wrong? I think the, the bigger this stuff gets, the worse it tastes, right? I mean, that's always been my case. You know, I, I've only had a six-foot zucchini, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That thing would scare me, you know. But anyway, uh, so, uh, you know, th the Lord wants to produce fruit, and he can do it wherever you are. You don't have to be, 
the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter. You don't have to be John the Baptist. I mean, these guys are examples for us of, of what is possible and what God can do. What he wants to do is bring forth fruit, and he can. So let him bring forth fruit in your, in your life, in your family, at your job. Those of you who are struggling at work, I, I know you're struggling. I, I, you know, believe it or not, I didn't have, I, I had a job once. And, uh, <laughs> and I struggled. I hated my job. I mean, I, I, I hated it, in a, in, you know, and, and I thought, this is a useless, terrible job, but it's my job. And, uh, I mean, I, but I didn't express my hatred for it. And I had some of the greatest times hating that job. Uh, some, if I had the morning to tell you about some of the trials I went through at that job, and, and just and the Lord, because I was a young Christian, a new Christian, I believed all this stuff, and and I thought, well, you know, praise the Lord. And uh, so one of these times, I'll tell you about how my boss almost beat me up, uh, and then I'll tell you about being served with a search warrant at the office by the Department of Justice, and uh, how how the Lord dealt with those great stories. Uh, that'll keep you coming for years to come. Now, but anyway. <laughs> So, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be a Christian and, and, and to, you know, to bear fruit right where you are. Read the word to discover how a Christian can conduct him or herself in your circumstances. For example, Peter writes this, honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king, servants be submissive. You catch the inflection there, first service. It was kind of a sarcasm, which I need to repent for. But we're supposed to honor the king. In our position, who would that be? President Biden. Actually, anybody that's above us, you know. And so let's honor the king. I'm, now you, now it, the rubber hits the road, doesn't it? <laughs> Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. This is what I was talking about earlier with your boss. Yeah, they had harsh bosses in this day and age as well. In fact, these people were slaves who had no rights. For this is commendable because if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully, what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults you take it patiently? When you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable, meaning this is what brings fruit in your life. So you have to translate that into your experience and, and what he's talking about today. Believe this is what you are commanded and therefore can do thanks to the help of the indwelling Holy Spirit and then desire for God to produce fruit in the situation, thinking of yourself as a branch that is attached to the vine. 